Welcome, everyone. My name is Mike Savage. I'm head of the Department of Sociology here at the LSE, and I'm also going to be chairing this um, discussion about the new forms of cultural capital. I am going to say a few words <clears throat> and show a few slides at the outset to, to set the debate going, but the three main contributors are sitting uh, on the table here, and they'll each come up and speak for about 10 or 15 minutes. And the main, in some ways, the main reason why we're here today is to, is to uh, take advantage of the visit of Professor Philippe Coulonjon from Sciences Po, who's been visiting the LSE for the last month, um, and he's going to be talking about some of his work on new forms of cultural capital. But also, alongside him, we have Sam Friedman, who's a colleague in the Department of Sociology at the LSE, and Laurie Hanquinet, who's visiting from the University of York. So this is a, a really quite distinguished panel. Because I'm chairing it, um, I'm not going to be answering any questions, but I will point the questions to people who might be able to answer them. And the other, other thing I should say at the beginning is that uh, Philippe has to catch the Eurostar uh, at just before 8 o'clock, so he's going to be leaving slightly early. So any questions towards him should come in the early part of the discussion. Okay, so as I said, I'm, not, I'm chairing it rather than speaking, but I thought, given this is an area which interests me, I should say a few words about um, the overarching concerns of this session, which, although they may seem quite specialised, actually touch on really key issues of debate now in, in the social sciences, and um, I think will interest a broad audience. And um, I'm showing a series of books and um, journals which have recently, in the last couple of years or less, been exploring the idea that there are new forms of cultural capital which are working in contemporary societies. And I'll say a bit more about cultural capital in a minute. But they include, um, <clears throat> firstly, the, on the left-hand side, the handbook um, by myself and Laurie Hanquinet, which is an international handbook bringing together uh, over 40 contributions from scholars across the world looking at issues around analysing, measuring and, and uh, conceptualising cultural capital. We also have a book which was edited by Philippe, over here in the middle. Oh, that's showing. It's gone, it's gone blank, but the blue one, The Outlet's Companion to Bourdieu's Distinction, which came out of a major conference in Paris several years ago, which, was, which provided the, 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 a great chance to evaluate the significance of Bourdieu's thinking 30 years on. The journal Poetics is one of the world's leading journals in cultural sociology, and it has a forthcoming uh, issue, edited by myself, Anne Laurie, and Sam, on new forms of distinction. Finally, well, not finally, Sam Friedman, who will be speaking in a minute, had a recent book out on forms of comedy, and um, any of you who have been looking at this new book, which I've, I and Sam have been involved with, on social class, will see the idea of emerging cultural capital as one of the sub-themes of the book. So, a number of different currents are coming through here, and the aim of tonight is to try and take stock of those currents. Okay, just a few words before I pass on to the panel. Um, many of you are, who I guess have come here will know about the term cultural capital. You'll have heard of Bourdieu, and you're probably familiar in some extent with his arguments in distinction. The point which we all want to emphasise is that that account was developed a long time ago, based upon empirical work carried out in the 1960s in France. It was, for instance, it was conducted at a time when only half of French households had a, had a TV set, and we were a long way from the internet, uh, Google, and all those things. 
So this is a very different moment. And the undercurrent for our rethinking of cultural capitalism is to say, well, can we still use the same account of cultural capital today, which Bourdieu developed uh, 50 or so years ago? But worth saying a few words about what, a, what Bourdieu was claiming about cultural capital. He emphasised that there was a kind of historical canon of cultural excellence, going back to the Enlightenment or before, which defined high culture, highbrow cultural capital. Is that still the same in today's fast-moving contemporary world? He developed this notion of the Kantian aesthetic as a means of understanding what cultural capital meant. And the argument here was that forms of cultural value and cultural distinction depended upon removing yourself from the everyday world, the humdrum world of getting by, and it demanded being a kind of intellectual, distant from the principles of necessity. Famously, Bourdieu argued that economic capital and cultural capital had separate, could, could be found separately. So you had some people who were intellectuals, who didn't have much economic capital, and some who were industrialists who didn't have much cultural capital. Um, he doesn't say much about Asian gender, which today might seem significant. And you can also argue that the distinction is premised upon the salience of national or perhaps European frames of reference. So all these things are underpin his work, but can be contested today. And um, you don't need to understand this diagram. This is a famous diagram from his book. Um, but it tries to give an account of cultural capital in France in the 1960s which emphasises two main distinctions. The vertical distinction on the y-axis, which distinguishes people with lots of cultural capital at the top from those without cultural, capital, from those without cultural economic capital at the bottom. And then this composition principle on the x-axis, the, the, the horizontal axis, which situates people with economic capital, someone on the left and cultural, sorry, on the right, and cultural capital on the, on the left. This is the kind of classic model you find in much of Bourdieu's work. Um, we don't need to get into details here, but the issue is, is this a good framework for thinking about cultures today? And a number of us, all of us in this table, have explored the idea that this model, although we're still very um, wedded to the notion of cultural capital in general, we think that we need to rethink how to measure it, how to analyse it, and how to conceptualise it. And these list of bullet points indicate the issues which we think are posed by current trends. Firstly, can we still talk about the historical canon of culture? Are we still these days influenced by uh, the, the legacy coming from the Enlightenment, from Shakespeare, from, from the classical tradition, uh, or not? Um, well, how lively and how important is that domain of cultural life these days? Um, just to give a flavour of some of the issues here, when you ask people about music, well, we, a few years ago, myself and some colleagues asked about musical taste, people knew about Beethoven, they knew about Mozart, they knew about Bach, but they rarely got excited about them. They got excited about contemporary things. And if that's true, where does that leave the link back to historical forms of cultural capital? Secondly, in Bourdieu's writing, there's very little about ethnicity, gender, age, as dimensions of cultural taste, but today... These issues are highly significant in various kinds of ways, as we'll see in the discussion to come. How do we give these more of a significant register in understanding cultural life? And finally, how do we take into account 
uh, a set of tastes which straddle national borders. In Bourdieu's model of distinction, he asked French people about their tastes, all sorts of things, but they were nearly all the tastes or the cultural works produced by French people. Um, and there was very little questioning about uh, art or culture or literature from Africa or America, even from the UK, actually. Um, can we do that these days in the world of the internet, musical streaming, and the diversity of cultural tastes? Arguably not. So how do we conceptualise the cosmopolitanisation of cultural tastes? My final slide set the scene is, over the last three or four years, one way of conceptualising a means of updating Bourdieu's approach is this concept of emerging cultural capital. And the argument here, put simply, is that there are forms of cultural capital linked to younger people, younger well-educated people, which are different in fundamental ways from those associated with elder people. Um, and there's a, therefore a very big emphasis upon the age and generational divisions in cultural capital. To give you an example, well, if any of you go to classical music concerts, you will know that it's really, really rare. I don't expect you do, look at the age of you in, the, in this audience, but if you do... <laughs> it's really rare to find um, people under the age of 40 at a classical music concert. The average age now at the BBC Radio 3, which is a classical music station, is about 65 years old. It's an ageing out of that kind of high cultural capital. Um, and the younger audiences appear to be interested in other kinds of things. Playing sports, listening to rap music, going to rock concerts, playing on the internet, uh, being on Facebook, Twitter or whatever. So it, there's arguably a generational shift taking place. Arguably, this is arguable, but at least on the face of it, uh, a shift taking place in how younger people are deploying cultural capital these days. Secondly, the Kantian aesthetic was about distancing yourself from the day-to-day. Cultural excellence depended upon standing back from everyday life, standing back from kind of you know, routine activities and being intellectual, taking an abstract point of view thinking about things um, in a way which valued abstract art, um, non-representational forms of culture. But today, arguably, there's much more focus upon getting involved, doing things, playing sport, you know, be on Twitter, be on Facebook, doing things, rather than, de- rather than detachment. And thirdly, um, again, a- another argument to pursue is the idea that today elite culture, even elite culture, is changed its nature. So rather than elite culture being defined by the historical, canonical, highbrow, even elite culture is now characterised by new and dynamic and emerging forms of cultural capital. In which case, even even the kind of the the high camp, the the kind of fortress of cultural capital is being remade. So those are the issues. Can we still talk about cultural capital? Um, Perhaps we can, perhaps we can't. But is the idea of emerging cultural capital a useful way, a useful framework for understanding the way forward and conceptualising these things better? So that's me setting the scene. I'm going to pass on to Philippe, who will give the first talk. Thank you. I just... uh, How does it work? To... Yes. Okay. Um, thank you for inviting me in this uh, very exciting round table. I, I will just 
try to um, build on uh, my preliminary remarks uh, and try to illustrate, illustrate this idea of emerging cultural capital in the context of uh, contemporary France. Uh, I will do that, with, do that with a specific focus on um, what I uh, will uh, call the cosmopolitan uh, cultural resources, which I think are of growing importance in uh, contemporary French uh, society, which are more and more divisive and cleaving uh, in uh, the, the French uh, context. I, 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 will, I will then question uh, more generally uh, the impact of these, uh, these emerging forms of cultural capital um, uh, on inequality. In uh, recent years, Uh, the mixing of cultural repertoires, the blurring of the boundaries between highbrow and lowbrow culture, uh, the emergence of new cultural assets uh, have sometimes been uh, viewed as uh, a sign of a kind of cultural democratization. Here, my contention is that uh, uh, these emerging forms of uh, cultural capital are not necessarily uh, more equally distributed uh, than the more established one, and uh, that the kind of cultural dispositions that go along with uh, this kind of emerging cultural forms of cultural capital uh, are not at all exclusive of uh, uh, some form of symbolic exclusion uh, or uh, domination. Well, um, concerning my first point, uh, I will uh, present here some very preliminary results uh, of an ongoing research, uh, mainly based on a multi-correspondence analysis made on the data of the 2008 Uh, French uh, survey on uh, French cultural practices. Uh, in this uh, analysis, I um, took into consideration three groups of variables. First, uh, variables uh, related to participation in eyebrow culture, books, owning and reading, uh, attendance to theater, opera, etc. A second group of variables that relate to participation in media culture, time spent on TV, preferred TV channels and programs, etc. And a third a group of variables that uh, relate to the participation in cosmopolitan culture, uh, reading of foreign books, watching of foreign TV channels, travels, uh, uh, taste in uh, uh, arts work from abroad, uh, etc. Uh, The basic uh, result of the analysis can be uh, displayed in the map of the two first factors of the, this multi-correspondence analysis. Basically, uh, uh, the, the first axis, the horizontal axis, uh, um, correspond by and large to a size factor or a volume <laughs> factor that contrasts on the left side of uh, this horizontal axis, people with a lot of cultural assets, especially a lot 
of hybrocultural uh, asset, but not exclusively. And on the other side of the uh, axis, uh, people that are basically deprived of many, if not all, of these cultural uh, assets, except from watching a television. So I think this very classical results can be completed by uh, the examination of the vertical, the second axis, that uh, contrast uh, what uh, I uh, call local and global uh, cultural assets. This second axis is mainly structured by the opposition uh, of established cultural items and cultural items that are rooted in the national cultural context. And on the top of the axis, cultural items that are more representative of emergent form of cultural capital and more precisely that are more representative of cosmopolitan cultural capital, reading a foreign book, uh, mastery of foreign languages, watching uh, TV uh, program in foreign language, um, uh, etc. If I had time, I could also, also uh, demonstrate by the production of some supplementary variable in this map that in the uh, northwest uh, quad quadrant of, uh, I don't know how it functions, so uh, in the northwest quadrant of the, uh, of the map, I could show that th that is precisely uh, the, the area of the map where the boundary between eyebrow and mass culture is uh, much more imprecise than in the other uh, area of uh, the map. So when projecting some social demographic characteristics on this map uh, as supplementary variables, uh, we see that it is really not a very surprising result that the first axis, the horizontal axis, is highly structured by class and education, contrasting on the left side of the panel people that are the, who are the most educated, people from, uh, from upper classes, uh, higher grad professional and managers, and on the right side, people that, who are the less educated and people from uh, uh, working classes, manual workers, non-manual -routine, non uh, routine workers, uh, etc. Well, turning to uh, my second point, uh, the question is whether uh, these emergence, the, the, uh, the emerging form of cultural capital in general, um, um, that the second axis of my analysis illustrates, uh, I think. Uh, uh, the point here is to, uh, um, is to consider if this uh, emerging form of cultural capital uh, go along or not uh, with a, a decrease in cultural inequalities. My general impression concerning uh, many of the emerging form of cultural capital that we are talking about this afternoon is that in a sense this emergence of new form of cultural capital disturb a little uh, the, uh, uh, the process of cultural reproduction disturb, in a sense, uh, 
the process of cultural uh, domination that uh, uh, generally underlie class relation. In other terms, the bad news for the dominant, to borrow the terms of Bourdieu, uh, is that these emerging forms of cultural capital are probably a little more difficult to transmit than the more conventional one, uh, because they are more generationally differentiated, because they are more uncertain and more changing, because they are less strongly related to established cultural and educational institutions. And so they probably require a more uncertain and different difficult work of transmission. But this bad news for the dominant does not mean good news for the dominated. The second point is that the bad news for the dominated is that uh, these emerging forms of symbolic domination based on more flexible boundaries between cultural repertoires based on this kind of irony, knowingness of uh, described by, here by many of my uh, uh, colleagues uh, at this table, uh, this aptitude to be at ease with various sorts of cultural items to speak like Shamuskan. Uh, perhaps all these dispositions, all these items, all these forms of cultural domination are perhaps more difficult to challenge precisely because they are, they are less anchored in established cultural and educational institutions. And, and for that reason, there is probably less opportunity uh, to challenge the domination by means, uh, for example, of uh, education. Uh, so if I uh, briefly uh, come back to my uh, analysis on French data, here what I uh, uh, did in this graph is only projecting the modalities of a variable which is made of the cross-tabulation of age and class. Uh, and what we see uh, here is that the relative distance between higher grade professional and manager uh, uh, and non-manual uh, uh, and manual worker are roughly the same uh, for people age uh, 30 or less and for people uh, age uh, 70 or less. There is no evidence of a generational decrease of the cultural distance between classes. The only thing is that there is a perhaps an increasing distance between the top of the class hierarchy, higher grad uh, professional and managers, and the intermediate uh, uh, level, lower grad professional. It is uh, uh, much more visible if we do the same kind of thing by crossing age and education. No, not any reduction, not any decrease of uh, cultural distance between less educated and more uh, educated uh, on the wall, but an increasing distance, perhaps, between those at the top of the educational hierarchies, people with uh, at least three years of uh, uh, universities, and those with an intermediate level of education, say, uh, people with up to two years of university. And I think that it's a result that could be uh, uh, investigated a, a, a little more. So I will just conclude with 
three remarks about the kind of thing that uh, I think uh, need to be investigated uh, in this field of uh, cultural, uh, of emerging form of cultural uh, um, capital. I think that we need to investigate a little more the question of transmission and conversion of this uh, emerging form of cultural capital. We definitely are, this form of transmission and conversion are really different, I think, uh, from the the transmission and conversion, the process of transmission and conversion of the more established one. We need to investigate uh, the relation between emerging cultural capital and education, where the notion of cultural capital was originally coined. A lot of uh, research about the emerging form of uh, cultural capital uh, displays the fact that the emerging form of cultural capital play a role in social life, but it's not uh, totally evident that they play uh, a role in uh, education, uh, especially education of very young uh, pupils. At least it's a thing that needs to be investigated. And uh, last, I think we need to investigate this emerging form of cultural capital in comparative uh, perspective because I think that the different national contexts are very uh, different in that respect. Well, I cannot uh, finish uh, without thinking, uh, thanking uh, Mike uh, and uh, all the members of the Department of Sociology for the very warm reception here at the LSE during these uh, four weeks. Uh, I have, uh, really been, it has uh, really been a very pleasant uh, period of time, a pleasant period that brutally ended um, on Friday night. And tonight I just hope that there will be other periods like uh, this uh, for weeks uh, in the future. Uh, thank you for all. Thank you, Philippe. Um, now on to Sam Freeman. Okay. Um, I want to just do two things with my uh, slot. Um, first, I'm going to briefly explain um, and introduce a case study, I suppose, of emerging cultural capital from my work on British comedy taste. Um, and then I want to push the concept a little further um, and think about how we might research how emerging cultural capital is actually expressed. How is it actually deployed in everyday life? So, um, my study of British comedy spanned five years, from 2008 to 2013. Um, it took place at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's the largest uh, comedy festival in the world. And I think comedy is interesting because, historically, it's very much been considered a lowbrow art form. Its lineage is in working-class musical, in early television sitcom, uh, 1970s trad stand-up, etc. But in the 1980s, a group of comedians initiated what, was come, what came to be known as the alternative comedy movement. And this really introduced more critical, more political, uh, more intellectual forms of stand-up, which have subsequently come to become very established genres in their own right, that really jostle for space alongside these more traditional forms. So I wanted to look at how those changes in the production of British comedy had affected the consumption of comedy. 
So in my study, I first used MCA, which was the method that uh, Philippe was just showing you there, to look at taste for a range of different British stand-ups and television comedies. And what I found was really striking. The most powerful taste division separates upper-middle class respondents in my study, uh, particularly younger generations, which I think is important, who tended to prefer a set of clearly critically acclaimed comedians. Okay? These were people like Stuart Lee, uh, TV comedies like Brass Eye and The Thick of It, um, from a set of working-class respondents, uh, particularly older generations, who tended to prefer a set of much less critically acclaimed comedians. Okay? These were people like Roy Chubby Brown uh, and Jim Davidson. And this taste division uh, is important, I argue, in the book because it both contributes to and reflects the construction of these certain comedians as special cultural objects, okay? Tastes that in and of themselves communicate a sense of Borgesian cultural uh, distinction. But I think the interesting thing to say about um, comedy, really, um, is really that most of the comedy in my survey, most of the comedy that I asked about, um, was actually liked across the spectrum. Okay? Um, it was crossover, if you might say. But for, this me, for me, this really underlined, I suppose, a limitation of trying to understand emerging forms of cultural capital um, solely through survey analysis. While questionnaires can tell you what culture people like, uh, it really can't tell you very much about why they like what they do. And this is really when I interviewed people that I found to be the most important sort of class divide in the UK. It was through the expression of a particular sense of humour that my upper-middle-class respondents in particular um, seemed to most aggressively set themselves apart. For these respondents, comedy should never be just funny. Okay? It should never centre purely around the creation of laughter. Instead, good comedy should have meaning, okay? whether this is a political message uh, or an experiment with form. Either way... The consumer should have to work for their laughter, okay? And in, uh, there was a sense that through doing so, one was able to sort of reach the higher plane of comic appreciation, to really get the joke um, in, its, uh, in its entirety. And I think the power of this particular sense of humour, this style of appreciation for comedy, is it seemed to give my respondents a sense, or certainly that they felt, um, that they could express distinction through the consumption of almost any comic object. Um, and this was actually demonstrated by, I suppose, um, discussions of those crossover comedians, the Eddie Izzards, the uh, Jimmy Cars, the Simon Amstels. Um, these stand-ups in the survey were liked by nearly all my respondents, but I was amazed by the insistence of more middle-class respondents in interviews, that they, they could get more from this kind of comedy. They were able to extract what uh, Melanie there um, said as a whole other level of, of humour. Now, one key thing, I suppose, that emerges from this work is that 
While measuring people's orientation to legitimate cultural objects may provide important clues about cultural capital, this kind of analysis, I think, is becoming markedly less useful, particularly if we really want to tap this idea of emerging cultural capital. Instead, for me, at least, the focus of empirical research needs to sort of go the other way. It needs to go in an ethnographic direction to look at two things. First, I think there needs to be more work on the nature of the dominant aesthetic. What, it, what is it <laughs> that uh, when people talk about culture, others recognise as a sense of authority, as a sense of sophistication? What, what precisely is in that expression um, that makes it dominant, legitimate, etc.? And second... I think it's important to look at how that notion of a dominant or a legitimate aesthetic is actually translated into expressions of taste uh, and actually deployed in everyday interactions. Now, just to give you a, a very brief uh, example of, of what I have in mind here, um, I want to introduce you to a respondent uh, from a paper I'm currently working on. Uh, this is Benedict he was a, uh, a 38-year-old, it's not his real name, of course. Uh, he's a, a senior IT consultant uh, and perhaps a sort of poster boy, I would suggest, for emerging cultural capital. He tells me he has strong interest in, in high art, traditional high art, particularly visual art and literature. But in our discussions, um, it's notable that Benedict is much more animated when discussing pop music. Okay? He is unapologetic, he tells me, about having, what he call, about having what he calls a pop sensibility. But at the same time, he is clearly looking for a certain type of popular music, a combination, he says, of originality and familiarity, something which is conventional but also a little unhinged. And the perfect example of this complex aesthetic match, he explains in our interview, is the American synth-pop band uh, the Future Islands, okay? And this is a quote from him there. He says, it's fairly conventional, but the, but the singer's got a very unusual vocal style. He's really odd. He's got these two registers, falsetto and quite deep, but at the same time, just enough of, of a normal pop sensibility. Now, I was really struck by not just the confidence uh, that underpinned Benedict's uh, aesthetic style, but also the sort of transmissibility of this aesthetic, the way he readily applied it across the cultural spectrum. So probing further, he explained to me, I suppose it's about the choices you make in almost any situation. Whenever the opportunity is there to make a choice between doing one thing or another, eating some sort of food or the other, there tends to be thought behind it, operating principles. It's not arbitrary, it's thought about. For example, we don't like McDonald's, that's that kind of fast food, but we would choose Burger King over McDonald's so everything, the bands, everything, you know, there's nothing that escapes scrutiny. So for me, this is really the perfect example of emerging cultural capital in action. Both refusing to refuse, okay, any sort of form of popular culture, but at the same time being sort of exhaustingly selective uh, and detailed in the decisions one makes uh, in terms of consumption. But I want to just finish with one important caveat in relation to Benedict. While his sense of certainty in the value of his own taste is really quite clear, 
What was interesting to me is that he's actually very careful, even calculating, about when and to whom he actually expresses this sensibility in public. So having just told me about the operating principles of his taste, he paused before noting, but some people do find it annoying. And I do want to retain that connection because you work in an organisation like I do with people from cleaners to the principal and some people are very good at talking vertically or communicating vertically. And I asked, do you think you're good at that? And he said, I'm not as good as I used to be, but I try. I mean, it's how you appear to others, isn't it? So I think it's partly about the performative. Yeah, wanting to establish a sort of zero base. So there's a persona that I want to project, which is more, you know, I've got it quite well. You experiment with different approaches, but ultimately it's performative. So I suppose my tentative suggestion, and I don't really have enough time to develop this argument here, um, is that part of the knowingness um, of emerging cultural capital may not just be about employing a particular aesthetic disposition, but also about applying a certain reflexive social disposition, a capacity, if you will, to monitor one's presentation of self, to know when to accentuate cultural difference, but also to know when to downplay difference. Uh, And here I'm thinking of a sort of Goffmanian idea of front stage, backstage selves. Especially, I think, and this is important, in a contemporary environment where morally a too naked expression of cultural distinction can actually backfire as a signal of smugness, or as a signal of snobbery, or as a signal of elitism. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thank you, you, Sam. Now we're moving on to Lloyd and Quinny. Right. Hello. Um, I'm going to make a presentation somewhat more theoretical, so I hope you, um, you won't mind. Um, I just want to explore um, the link between hybrid culture and cultural capital, and you will see there is a link with emerging form of cultural capital. Um, I believe it's actually uh, trying to assess the link between cultural capital and hybrid culture is actually a very useful exercise in order to uh, assess the theoretical value of one, omnivorousness, and second, emerging form of cultural capital. I have three uh, more precise questions in mind. Um, first, I wanted to ask uh, whether we actually need um, hyperculture when we talk about cultural capital. Um, and this is mainly because in the sociology of education, for instance, they have, uh, some people, some scholars have argued that we don't need um, the notion of um, hyper-aesthetic culture to account for um, cultural capital. Um, and in that case, cultural capital just becomes uh, a skill uh, competence, uh, some knowledge. So it's a very, it, has, it becomes very vague um, in a sense. Um, and linked to that, so if, let's imagine that we want to keep a hybrid culture uh, related to culture capitals. The second question is what does hybrid culture mean in our current cultural context, uh, which has been called uh, omnivorous or eclectic, more eclectic than before? And then this will uh, 
uh, will uh, enable me to then assess the theoretical value of uh, the omnivore and the idea of, um, of the idea of emerging culture capital. So does um, embodied cultural uh, capital need hydroculture uh, to be defined? So basically I will argue yes, um, because if you think about cultural capital, cultural capital is based on the idea of accumulation of resources, which was in Bourdieu's mind led by different aesthetic principles, and I think Mike have already discussed that um, when he talked about the Kantian aesthetic, for instance. But, there is a but, um, hybrid can not only actually be uh, related to a hybrid aesthetic Bourdieu anymore. So, uh, uh, what I mean by as, uh, the, uh, the, the hybrid aesthetic Bourdieu uh, is an aesthetic that virulates that, that privileged form of a matter uh, who will privilege, which will privilege uh, a distant relation to art uh, and etc. So nowadays this, this, this specific way to approach culture and art has, has changed. Um, cultural producers and consumers have increasingly embraced uh, a new aesthetic criteria that could be called postmodernist for instance. Um, but these new criteria challenge the, the separation from the commercial and the popular uh, culture and endorses a more playful um, aesthetic based on experimentation. So um, there are the, the changes in what is aesthetically and socially refined um, have, uh, can explain the emergence of the well-known figure of the omnivore. And the omnivore is someone who is keen to engage with uh, different forms of high, middle, and lowbrow um, cultures. So yes, we're going to keep uh, hydroculture, or, or at least I will keep it. Uh, but then what does it mean nowadays? Um, and I think we need to remember one thing. We need to remember that omnivore um, are people who um, take their very specific status, their privileged status. Uh, their privileged status come from the fact that they cross specific and persisting boundaries. So really, omnivores, omnivores need hybrid to remain in place. So they need hybrid, they need a tension between hybrid and lowbrow culture, but um, they, and they will cross that, that tension, and by crossing that tension, they will actually draw new social boundaries. So they, that's the first point, really. Omnivorousness is a mechanism that feeds on the distinction between hybrid and lowbrow culture, uh, but also uh, be, uh, that between um, younger and older forms of culture um, rather than destroying them. And I think uh, Philippe has already mentioned the tension between the older and the younger. Um, the second one is I want also to say is that uh, we, can, we can argue that agriculture has become somewhat more inclusive. So I've already mentioned the fact that there are new aesthetic criteria. Um, there are new forms of being um, uh, aesthetic, of aesthetic refinement, and if you think, for instance, about uh, Diamond Earth, is a, is, a, is a quite. I mean, his work is quite a good example of these new aesthetic forms. But I'm, I'm quite more interested here in what I have called the hybrid byproduct of popular culture, and it's quite important to uh, look into popular in, to see popular um, to see that there are a hierarchy within cultural genres within popular cultural genres. Uh, so you have a tension between good 
refined, sophisticated popular culture uh, uh, versus the bad, the unsophisticated popular culture. And I quite like the example um, that Johnston and Bowman has given about the gourmet burger. So uh, the burger was historically just uh, a classic uh, working class dish. And now it has become something more, um, can be a bit more um, highbro if you take the, the gourmet burger with Kobe beef, special bread, and so on and so on. So this is, the, this is a, a way that the upper classes uh, have actually managed to use popular culture uh, for their own means. Uh, you also have the, uh, a very good paper by Regeff where he shows how people have tried to make rock serious, to make it something quite a, a serious art and try to change the rhetorics around it. Um, so basically you can argue that hybrid has become, hybrid culture has become more inclusive because um, it has used uh, some forms of popular culture, but in a way some forms of hybrid popular culture. And also the last thing I wanted to, the last point in my argumentation for this question is there are also um, distinctive ways to be omni, uh, to be uh, to be omnivore. So you can like many things, but you will like them in a specific way. And Sam has just given you the example of comedy, uh, where people from different class can like a similar comedian, sim a similar show, but they won't appreciate it in a similar way. And you can actually develop some sort of rhetoric that make you look eyebrow. You will like a show because it's small, because it's socially reflexive, and so on and so on. So all of this to say um, that basically the omnivore is not a real challenger. Um, and um, omnivores has never challenged the existence of hybroculture, but reflects the fact that hybroculture has become more inclusive. Um, and what is socially and aesthetically valorized by those with high cultural capital um, has been updated to reflect wider cultural and social changes. But omnivores then, uh, sort of being eclectic, cr crossing boundaries between high and low culture, omnivores appear to be simply the empirical manifestation of this process rather than the cause. So this apparent eclecticism, uh, eclecticism doesn't mean the end of cultural hierarchies, but rather a more complex structuration of cultural capital, um, and which includes this position to appreciate established but also more emerging uh, cultural forms. So in that sense, um, this is, we need to understand that cultural capital can have a floating meaning and that we need to update its meaning uh, to take into account that the field of cultural productions evolves, change, uh, new criteria become, uh, come um, forward. Uh, and this is very in line with the uh, historical nature of Bourdieu's habitus, who really, according to Bourdieu, the habitus absorb um, uh, contextual transformation and process them into new disposition. So in short, um, emerging uh, people who have actually worked, um, the contribution of those who are working on, on emerging forms of cultural capital has been essential. Um, because they ha help us to rethink the reconfiguration of uh, the configuration of cultural capital is structuration. Uh, it shows that new cultural items. Oh, they don't want me to speak anymore. <laughs> okay, how do I do that? Do you have an idea of how that works? I can. I have just one slide left. But. 
Well, basically, new stuff have happened. Um, <laughs> the new cultural um, items and aesthetic criteria have progressively become valorized, um, but they are not sim symbolically accessible to all. So new forms of distinction happen, um, appear. Um, the, these new resources have not seriously questioned the link between hybro and um, cultural capital, but we can actually suggest that there are uh, different kinds of, cult, uh, of hybrid culture. There are different ways to, to, to relate to hybrid culture uh, and different kinds of hybrid culture uh, which can take a more classic and a more contemporary outlook. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie. So I think you, you'll see these three different presentations all exploring the ways in which cultural hierarchies and cultural capital are being remade, but also in some ways staying the same. So how we can see forms of cultural hierarchy being uh, reconstructed, even on the basis of contemporary changes. Okay, we have about half an hour for any questions or comments from the floor. Who would like to start? Hi, thank you very much for those very interesting presentations. Um, I was just wondering what role, if any, do you think that government policy plays in cultural capital? For example, the UK has the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and do you think it should play a role? Okay. Any more questions before we ask for responses? One over there, I think. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for the interesting presentations. I wondered if any of the panelists could say a little bit more about something that was mentioned at the start by um, Mike Savage about the importance of sort of the contemporary in uh, shaping cultural capital, so the importance of uh, cultural exposure, to, I mean, uh, exposure to different cultures and international experience and volunteering and all of these things. Uh, and in, in what way does that set up new forms of distinction? And um, in a way, is that a kind of... Uh, could it be a kind of deadlock in terms of that, you know, we're, we're all trying to do it, but who actually gets to to do it in a, in a way that's uh, distinguishing um, from the other types of experience? So where are the kind of thresholds there? Uh, because it seems to be a kind of ubiquitous uh, way of distinguishing yourself. I, I know that's a contradiction, but I, yeah. I thought that might be interesting to talk about that as well. Two good questions. Should we get some... Is there, is there one more stage? There's one, one more down there, yeah. Hello. Um, thanks very much for the presentations. Um, I work in education access and social mobility, and I'm thinking about these presentations through the lens of education and what should be taught to children um, and trying to put some value on culture and therefore trying to prioritise things within a curriculum. Um, I was struck by uh, your presentation, Sam, um, by one by a question, which is, is it that the appreciation of perhaps what could be called established forms of culture um, inform this other level um, that you can get from emerging forms of culture? So is there perhaps no real or no significant value in emerging culture except that that can be added by knowing established forms of culture? And I wonder whether the other panellists would be interested in commenting on that. <coughs> Great, three good, really good questions. Who, who would like to start, my panel members? Sam? Yeah, I mean, I'll maybe start with the last question, which is a, 
a crucial question in a way, and it's sort of... Um, I was talking to Philippe before the talk today about the importance of education in, in all of this, um, and I suppose it also talks to the question a little bit about policy. Um, I think that um, in terms of... It's difficult to know what the relation... I mean, in the sense that it's not been empirically examined, when people are sort of ranging around these sort of different cultural forms, what has gone first? Um, and it, it would seem a, a sort of logical assumption that um, in the way me and Philippe were talking about earlier, you almost have to know the rules, i.e. you've sort of learnt didactically the canon, perhaps in your school, to then be able to feel confident enough to play with the rules in terms of ranging then into, you know, a uh, ironic or knowing appreciation of um, of particular co- popular cultural forms. But it, I would say that is an empirical question that would have to be sort of looked at in some depth. Um, but I think it, it's it's interesting. My, I, I'm not sure how um, how important that those sort of uh, established forms are. I, I'm not sure I would feel confident that everything is sort of flowing still from a base knowledge um, and I mean I mean your, your your sort of initial thought was around sort of access and she's here I suppose the um, as Philippe was saying perhaps the the, the, the almost the, the scariest thing about when you link process of emerging cultural capital inequality is precisely because you can't necessarily identify objects that it's associated with, it's harder to challenge. Um, and so in terms of sort of access or equalising access to emerging cultural capital so that it doesn't necessarily have this role in perpetuating inequality, um, I think that would be a real challenge and has to be more about, you know, how you look rather than what you're looking at. Um, and um, it's, I would imagine it's something about this idea of, of confidence that comes with your, your, your right to speak about cultural value about the your sense that your taste has has value and i don't know if that's something that can can be sort of embedded in an educational context i don't know sorry Uh, yes i would like to react to the comments about cultural policy and uh, about education too Uh, about cultural policy in the french context uh, there are there has been during the last uh, 20 or 30 years uh, a a real debate in terms of uh, doctrinal controversy in the realm of cultural policies between the conception of cultural policy in terms of democratization of the canon and an alternative form of cultural policy which is uh, uh, more uh, elaborated in terms of cultural democracy. That is the idea uh, that the role of uh, public policy is not to impose the cultural canon, but uh, uh, to give the same kind of opportunity to the diversity of existing cultural repertoires uh, in the society. Well, this this, uh, controversy... uh, seems to me uh, quite theoretical because in reality uh, when you look at the budgets, when you look at the uh, French to, to 
to take the example of France, French cultural policy remains highly defined in terms of democratization of the established uh, cultural canon. So I think that the question we are talking about are clearly, clearly related in that sense with question of uh, uh, cultural policy. Because we all know that this old model of cultural democratization has failed and that probably we should uh, 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 reframe uh, cultural policies much more in terms of cultural democracy, uh, at least in order to taking into account the fact that new cultural assets appear that are relevant and uh, which unequal distribution has uh, social consequences. But in reality, I think that in the French context, at least, cultural policy remains highly defined in terms of cultural democratization. As to the question of the link between education and culture, <coughs> education and cultural capital, um, yes, uh, I was talking about that with Sam before the, 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 the talk, and uh, my impression is that, but it's perhaps my impression uh, is, is misleading, but my impression is that a, a lot of examples of emerging cultural capital that we are talking about uh, this afternoon relate to uh, cultural items, cultural assets that play the role in the structuring of symbolic relation between classes among adult people. But I'm not so sure that at least today, this form of emerging cultural capital really uh, plays a, 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 a role as crucial as the more established, uh, culture, more established forms of cultural capital in the process of education, at least in the process of education, say, at primary school, for example. If you look at university, I think it would be different. If we have in mind uh, the, the, the wonderful book of Shamus Khan, Privilege, we see that there is something in the training of the elites today, uh, which has something to do with this uh, aptitude to uh, manage this uh, emerging form of cultural capital. But if we consider education as a, the process of educating young, very young pupils, I'm not totally sure that things are so changing. Sorry, I'm a bit too long. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to add something about cultural policy. Um, there is the same kind of thing uh, in Belgium as well. So the, um, cultural, the issues around cultural democratization has been replaced by col cultural democracy in trying to, to respect uh, uh, different forms of culture, minority cultures, and etc. Uh, but in the UK, there has been a report recently by Miles and Sullivan in which they argue that the main tension in the UK, at least, is the tension between the culturally engaged and versus the culturally disengaged. And then we should focus on try uh, the policymakers should focus on everyday uh, participation. Um, that I, I agree with that, but I also agree, uh, but it's not very surprising given my talk, that we shouldn't forget that 
hybrid culture is not in decline, uh, and that what we f- we fund actually the money uh, where the money goes is very important too, uh, and we need to fund different different forms of participation. So yeah, that's that's one one answer to that. So please have a look at Miles and Sullivan uh, paper. Um, also, I think I have a slightly different view about the the, the, the tension between. Um, Hybro uh, and between uh, hybrid culture and emerging forms. So, for more established and, and emerging forms of cultural capital, I do think that um, I do think that usually people who develop emerging form of capital are, have, are people who already have a strong background, cultural background, who have a strong uh, cultural knowledge that they can actually use to transform something that, were, that was not edgy into something that is now edgy. So they have this, these skills to make something emerging, uh, something that has some kind of value. Um, so um, I do think established forms of culture and, and the teaching established form of culture is still quite uh, important in the, in the pro- production and reproduction of social certification. I can just add one thing there, abuse my brother chair. On the, on the issue about is it, what, is, what is contemporary about it, and also kind of the institutional structure of uh, cultural taste, because I think it's crucial. It's kind of, we know descriptively that these patterns, and, and I mean, we've, we've all looked at that in various ways, but it's kind of what is the, can we see these as forms of privilege and power? I just want to share with you an anecdote, really, but perhaps this is an interesting one for my, for my son, who's 16 years old, doing his GCSEs. Um, in history, he is looking at um, the Weimar Republic and the rise of fascism, and he's looking at uh, the Vietnam War and uh, the rise of communism in China. Uh, I nothing before 1914, but quite international. It's kind of quite interesting. I mean, he hasn't actually done any medieval history along the way. So what, how, what does that mean in terms of the stakes around the contemporary? And in English, he's doing um, two, two authors who are... Um, I mean, I did Shakespeare when I was, you know, in the usual stuff... Chaucer even was mentioned when I was doing my exams. He's doing uh, Nick Hornby. For those of you who know him, he's a kind of middle-brow kind of uh, novelist who writes about, you know, um, alienated young, young boys and men. And um, J.B. Priestley, and you know him, a middle-brow, again, English, English novelist from the 1930s. Nothing, nothing going back for the 20th century. So I do think, actually, institutionally, we are seeing a reworking of the stakes of the contemporary in ways which are quite interesting and which don't necessarily value the, kind of the, the traditional highbrow, but of course that's just an anecdote, but I thought I'd throw it in. Any more questions? <clears throat> Is it on? Yes. Yeah. Thanks for an interesting talk. I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit more about a possible <coughs> divide also between economic and culturally, because now all of you talk, of course, kind of a clear clear distinction between highbrow and lowbrow in omnivores, of course, but I wonder if you see any, any differences in that. Okay. Let's have two more. Um, just sort of a follow-up to Mike's question there. Um, you've all stated that you think highbrow culture is still very important in how we look at um, cultural capital. I wanted to ask you, do you think um, what we consider highbrow culture has changed, and particularly, say, the classical canon? Um, so it might be a more, more theoretical question for Laurie, but also um, an empirical one for Philippe on sort of how has the cultural canon in France changed since Bourdieu's time and what, what is the importance of that? Well, if it has changed, that is. Okay, one more. The back there. The, the back. Oh. Uh, 
Das ist fein. Ja. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, do you think that behind this um, refusing to refuse, as Dr. Friedman uh, called it, but at the same time being s somehow selective about what we like, so do you think behind this uh, sort of contradiction there is a sort of sense of indecision of what we like nowadays? And uh, to be a little more extreme, do you think that... Um, behind this sense of indecision, if it, there is any, well, this sense of indecision challenges the concept of cultural hegemony nowadays, at least in the sense that it was used before in some decades ago. Okay. Thank you. Okay, questions there? Um, who'd like to go first? Philippe, go first? Yes, well, I'm not sure to, to, to have catch all, all the points. Uh, I was uh, wondering how to find a, a tube to go to St. Pancras because <laughs> it appears that there is some problem. Sorry. Um, uh, if, uh, uh, about the question, what is changing, what's, what is not changing about the, 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 the role of, of culture? It was your point. Yeah, uh, what has changed in, in what is important on, on the canon, or, or is it important that there are changes on the canon? I don't. Uh, both. Well, uh, difficult to, 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 to answer. Um, I think that uh, one of the points that uh, uh, Mike, uh, Laurie, and other uh, colleagues have uh, very uh, highly emphasized. Uh, in the handbook that they recently uh, edited, is important to to uh, uh, tackle with this question in a non-substantialist uh, uh, way. That is to say that. Uh, we have to think this question of cultural capital, cultural divide, cultural cleavages uh, in terms of in a relational way rather than in, in a substantial way. Definitely, I think that uh, I will say that uh, high temps might change, the definition of canon might change. But what we observe is that basically the underlying process remain um, quite the same. Uh, um, I cannot uh, uh, say more on that point um, uh, at the moment, sorry. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so, um, I do think actually there are different uh, different forms of hybrid cultures nowadays, and I think there are more um, classical forms and more um, modern or contemporary form. And I, I also do think that the winners in this game, if there are uh, winners, is those who actually can uh, can play with both. We can like uh, an, uh, we can like uh, listening to uh, an opera and can uh, play video games afterwards. So this we can combine, and this is the combination that kind of combination that can help you to uh, navigate through different social um, strata. Who can who can give you some uh, social uh, capital because you can know different people and also um, can yeah, ha can navigate within different milieus. So that's what I think really. Um, yeah, thank you. Oh, oh, 
just start by trying to answer that the last question, which I thought was really interesting, this idea of sort of refusal to refuse as a form of indecision. Yeah, I think um, indecision possibly isn't the right word because it implies um, weakness possibly or, 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 or I, for me it's more a, a sort of deliberate or a calculated decision not to perhaps um, uh, pin your stripes you know, too clearly to uh, um, particular objects um, and um, you know perhaps also perhaps it, and you know this is what I was trying to and perhaps not very well trying to illustrate in the last example is that I think there is something about um, the uh, a moral um, sort of need or sense that uh, of social acceptability to sort of not appear to be too clearly publicly demarcating one's sense of cultural sophistication and so part of the perhaps being less tied down by particularly straightforward set of tastes and objects that one consumes and builds an identity around is partly about leaving one open to be able to play with different interactions and different interactions with different types of people um, that doesn't so clearly sort of distinguish oneself in that way. Um, so for me, it's not necessarily indecision. It's it, um, I can't think of a word, but it's an yeah. Well, yeah, it's a sort of um, it's an ideology. Not being tied down, possibly. That's uh, yeah. I'm sure I'll think of a better word at some point. <laughs> um, the the economic versus cultural capital question, just quickly. Um, I think, I mean, none of us have explored this, I don't think, necessarily explicitly in our, in our work. The interesting, there's Mike's uh, done work that's shown that, um, unlike other countries in Europe where people have tried to map Borges' distinction um, and where they found a clear cultural uh, capital composition axis in the British sort of data, they didn't find that as clearly. Um, and I wonder if that's something to do with um, the way in which um, particular sort of economic professions in the UK, things like um, banking or um, allied to that, um, still perhaps require, in a sort of, in a certain sense, um, certain forms of established cultural capital in order to uh, make one's way in that in that domain, which would, in a way, sort of um, reduce the uh, distinction to some extent, but. If you're asking whether there is at all a distinction, I think there absolutely is, but I think there are probably differences to do with education systems and historically in different countries. Just a couple of words. Um, just, I, mean, I think the questions raised are really, really important ones, and I think the, the, these are the kind of current issues. The point about what is the canon, the canon is still there in many ways, the traditional canon. It's just that it seems, and this comes out of work we did at the Cultural Capital Project several years ago, it has less excitement. So, you know, people still know Beethoven, they still know Mozart, but people don't get excited about it, certainly like young people, in the way that, you know, they might have done in the previous decades. What gets people excited? And in Bourdieu's terms, what conveys the stakes and intensities is the contemporary stuff, which I think there is some shift there. 
but also they came out the question about the global and the kind of cosmopolitan. In some nations in the world, you know, I think you can find, I have to particularly think of a PhD student of mine, uh, Maria Luisa Mendez, who did some work on Chile a number of years ago. She, her argument was that in Chile, the big difference wasn't between kind of straightforward highbrow or middlebrow and lowbrow. It's between, it between middle class Chileans who look towards Europe for their cultural inspiration and those who look towards America. So it's because kind of, kind of geographical frame of reference is more salient than just in a highbrow culture, whatever that is. And given the way in which American culture is often seen to be quintessentially in a popular culture, and European culture has historically been seen as kind of highbrow, but, that, but those terms are being, re, are, re, are being remade, I think. So I think the issue of geographical reference points is overlapping with the issue about cultural hierarchy in interesting ways. One last round of questions, I think, if there's time. I w- so, yeah. uh, I was uh, interested in the um, the influence of social media and the fact that we're well encouraged, it seems, to express our um, interests and tastes far more frequently now and use cultural objects to kind of decorate our Facebook pages. I feel like I'm constantly interrogated to, you know, to name five good things. And I was just interested in whether this um, higher frequency of expressing um, cultural taste, is that feeding, is there any research or any um, thoughts on whether that's feeding back into perceptions of culture as a whole? Question. Two more. Hi, um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was just wondering, in terms of the on- omnivore argument, um, being, being an omnivore, um, isn't that just sort of an indirect form of distinction in itself? Because um, surely it's only sort of the dominant classes that can, that can afford to um, that have the privilege of um, crossing those boundaries between highbrow and lowbrow. One more. Hi, thank you for your talks. Um, I was wondering if how if tech and how we use tech is an important part of cultural capital, and um, also things like social media. Is there a hierarchy? Have you found from your research in how they're used and which ones are used by different people? Thank you. Is there one any more? Back there. Yeah. Back. Um, could you please comment on uh, the tastemakers and their role um, in, in emerging forms of cultural capital, whether they have an in, increasingly important role or a, a waning role? Good. Okay, uh, that's the final round. I'm afraid Philippe has, has to leave for the Eurostar, but the three of us here will find <laughs> our best. Louis, do you want to catch well, I have an East Coast to catch. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so omnivory is a new form of distinction. Yes, I fully agree. Um, it's a, uh, it's, as, as I said, it's the crossing cultural boundaries to draw new social boundaries, so they kind of become distinctive and, and, and establish some status from that. So <coughs> I completely agree. <coughs> but um, social media, um, um, I do think um, 
developing some knowledge in social media has become some sort of a form of new uh, power, new forms of uh, power you can uh, have on others, and especially in terms of uh, age, uh, difference in age and generations. So you can think that if you know how to manipulate the media and uh, if you you know how to build a um, a, 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 an efficient Twitter account or et cetera, et cetera, that gives you some skills and you can basically be, um, have the opportunity to be heard and become influential and et cetera. So I think this is definitely um, something that we should look at in the establishment of culture capital. Um, and in terms of tastemaker, um, yes, uh, I don't know if they are increasing. I don't, I don't really know about that, but what is sure is that, again, because of the social media, they have... Um, those who are important have definitely um, great social exposure. Uh, sometimes um, not the best one, uh, uh, but also you have people who uh, become some sort of, uh, who become emblematic of new changes. And to go back to the idea of uh, different forms of vibros, I was thinking of an example. I was, I was listening to uh, Francesco Tristano the other day, and he's, uh, he's a fantastic uh, classic pianist, uh, trained at the uh, Juilliard School, very famous in New York, but now he's doing electro music, and he's actually combining uh, piano and electro music, and he's, he's really kind of a symbol of, of how to uh, emerge established and emerging forms of cultural capital, and I think you know, in that way he's acting as a, as a, as a tastemaker. Yeah, um, uh, thanks for the question. I'm thinking about the one about tastemakers. I um, wrote about this a little bit in relation to comedy, where I think um, a bit like uh, Motti Regev, Laurie mentioned, tastemakers were hugely important in terms of um, creating a discourse for rock music that actually sort of made it legitimate. Um, similar, I think, in relation to comedy to some extent in the role of comedy criticism as a way of sort of legitimating it as, a, as, a, as an art form for the middle classes to start uh, talking about uh, and enjoying. Um, I think the question of whether they're becoming more or less is, again, very hard for us to sort of answer empirically. Um, I suppose, you know, in an age where um, notions of sort of like the, the critical authority of, 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 of one or certain people is challenged by uh, the way in which people can um, express opinions about uh, cultural performances. Um, I'm thinking about the Edinburgh Fringe, for instance, where still I think people use uh, critics very much to decide what to do, but forms of more sort of bottom-up forms of criticism from uh, audience members are actually becoming increasingly powerful in terms of driving uh, audiences word of mouth and I suppose the internet facilitates that um, so that might be some indication but I think that would, is sort of a, 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 an empirical question um, Mike, do you have Let's just one to a couple of things, one, one of those about technology which also overlaps with the issue about social media and things I mean uh, I, think, <clears throat> I think there's something very important here which is that again, when Bourdieu was writing you know, the, 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 the intellectual class was predominantly a kind of class which was trained in the humanities. It was trained in history and philosophy and literature, art, music. That, that, those were the kind of disciplinary domains which defined high taste. Over the last, well, particularly over the last 50 years, we've seen this rise of technical expertise across whole swathes of social and cultural life. Um, and I do think, trying to understand what's up, it's sometimes, sometimes called technical capital, but I'm not sure that's the best phrase, but people who've got skills from computer programming and IT 
um, and stuff. We need to take that into account. So people are often get, getting their cultural kudos these days from those kinds of mechanisms, I think, as much as referring back to, to the humanities, which can be seen as a bit, um, a bit old, a bit old hat. Um, yeah, the taste, yeah, I also want to go back to this issue about economic capital, too, which was partly raised over here, but I think it's also also linked into the kind of debates, bigger debates, because Bourdieu famously talks about economic capital, social capital, and cultural capital. And one way of thinking about what's happening today might be partly that what the social media allow is social capital to have more power relative to cultural capital, because part of the thing going on is kind of who you know, and the number of people you know in one form or another can be expanded using the social media. So whether actually the cultural, one's cultural activities are being more folded back into social capital, our, friend, our friendships and our networks is, I think, an interesting issue. And then also on this point, which goes on to the economic capital issue, I have been very influenced by you know, Piketty's argument, which is uh, not a million miles away from Bourdieu, but he's saying over the last 30 years there's been this big accumulation of economic capital. So when Bourdieu was writing, economic capital, wealth, savings, was much lower than it has become. And, if, and that trend is apparent in many, many nations, including the UK, particularly, particularly starkly. The logic of that is to say, well, therefore, in today's world, economic capital is likely to count for much more vis-à-vis cultural capital than was the case 50, you know, 50 years ago. And hence, it is the big, and also links into the kind of tastemakers taste argument. I mean, who are the big tastemakers in music? Arguably, it's not uh, the publicly funded uh, music services. It is the private companies and the people who run, who, 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 and the private interest groups which run popular music. So you know, there could be a very important shift in the balance between economic, cultural and social capital according to which ones have been accumulating most rapidly. And in that area, economic capital is very you know, powerful and increasingly powerful. Google, Facebook, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know uh, Twitter, these are all very wealthy, affluent private companies and they're, they're having a key influence these days. OK, I think that's uh, enough. Thank you very much thank for you. your questions. Thank you. And thank you for coming.